Jez has asked me to speak about a, a particular thing which I've done before, um, but never done in a church setting before, on how we understand or think about what a successful life might look like, what success is for us. So this is a little bit of a, we're going to start a series next week on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to be looking at Jesus' teaching through Matthew 5-7 to 7, starting next week. But for today, I just want to do a complete one-off random talk about how we understand what success is in the Christian life and how we're supposed to think about it. And uh, we're going to look at a few different passages in the Apostle Paul to, to help us with that. And we're going to look at the question through Paul's eyes, if you like. Um, but I want you to do a little exercise before we turn to Paul for a moment, if that's okay. And I might ask you, if you're okay doing this, to close your eyes and to use your imagination for a moment. It's not cultic. We're not going to do anything weird. We're just going to think about things. Um, but I wonder if you could close your eyes and imagine a room, and the room is comfortably furnished. It's got a plush carpet. And it's got rows of chairs facing the front, a little bit like this, but it's much more sort of richly furnished than this. And there's an aisle down the middle, and at the front of the room there's a platform, and it's beautifully lit. It's got uplighters and candles. And in the center of the platform is a table. And on top of the table is a box. And in the box, you. And then over the PA system comes an MP3 recording of your voice, describing the life that you've lived the things you did and the experiences you had and the lives you touched. It's your last words to everybody that knew you at your funeral. And my question is, what would that MP3 recording say if you had had a successful life? You know, I just imagine some of the things you, you hope that that recording would say if you, your life was a success, if it was what you looked for. What does a successful life look like? Okay, you can open your eyes. I don't know if you have any immediate thoughts about that. I'm asking it that way because it helps focus the mind a bit and sounds a bit macabre as well. Let's think about death on a Sunday morning. Why not? Um, but actually, asking it that way makes us think a bit, probably, about what we would like to believe had been true of ourselves by the time we died. And when that happens, when that recording goes, the chances are what people will say about us will not particularly be what we said we thought was important, but will simply be what we did. It'll be much more bound up, not with our, in a, in a sense, the, the words that we claimed. I believe life was about this, and I went for that, and these are the things I value. It's actually, often, when you die, I suppose, what the impact you leave, the legacy you leave for other people, will be bound up with what you actually did, rather than what you said you thought you were going to do. And what do you want to be able to say? You know, what do you regard as being a successful life? That's the question I'd like you to just think about, and maybe bring some biblical shape to a bit this morning. It may, it may be something you think about all the time. You may just say, me, I, was, I had my eyes closed for nine hours last night just thinking about death. I don't know, maybe some of you are. And some of you may think, I've never thought that. I've never really given it any consideration. But it's important, I think, to figure out what success will look like for you um, because if you don't do that, then the world will provide an answer for you because you will, if you don't actually think what is that? What, is that? what do I want to have achieved? What do I want my life to have meant? If you don't do that, then you will be given an answer by advertising people who have an awful lot of money to make out of making you want something in your life. Or you'll get the answer from, I don't know, political systems or from friendship groups or from albums you buy, you know, you buy or books you read. But you will be given an answer. And unless it's kind of thought about and you think, that actually is what really matters to me. And a lot of these other things are just trivia and mess. Until that's happened, you, you probably will be provided an answer passively rather than discovering one actively. 
And uh, so we've got a guy in the Eastbourne, uh, the Hamden Park site of the church, um, a guy called Dave, who used to work for the Department for International Development. And he was quite senior in it. And so sometimes he used to meet with um, politician people, powerful people who had a chance to sort of shape what was going to happen with development, you know, kind of helping poorer nations perhaps develop economies and so on. And, uh, and he had this role where he would used to go into these meetings and he said, I knew that they would only listen for about 20 seconds of what I was saying. They're just five-minute meetings, and you have to grab them with something. And so I had, they came in, one of these meetings, they came in and they said, so tell us, how, what, do you, what do you think we need to know about this? And he, so Dave is thinking, I've got a very short window to be able to get them with a thought. And so he said, I think the challenge you face, he said, is that governments value what they've worked out how to measure. They don't work out how to measure what they value. And that was, his, that was his line. He goes, that's what I got in in my first few seconds. That governments, and I suspect it's also true for churches and for individuals, they value what they've worked out how to measure. They go, this is countable. So this is a good way of measuring success. Um, you know, we've given away this much money. Boom, there's a number, look. And so we value that rather than thinking, what do we actually value? And then figure out how to appraise whether it's working and figure out how to measure it. And so David just saying, that government policy on this is top to, topsy-turvy, back to front. You, you think about it the wrong way. You find a, a measurable item, and that becomes your metric of success, whereas what you should be doing is saying, this is what's truly meaningful, and it might not be measurable using current systems, so we've got to figure out how we measure that, or something like that. And I think it's the same with churches, actually. I think it's very easy to measure the success of a church by the number of people in it, or by the number of people added to it in a given year, or by the number of people on an alpha course, or by the number of, I don't know, there's lots of numbers you might use. And I've joked around with leader friends of mine that if you were to, if you actually had a metric or a, a number for every single thing, like what is the, say you had a TAQ, you had a theological accuracy quotient for every person in the church, or you had a, a, a sort of gift mix thing or a godliness value added measurement. So what is the God in, what is the GVA of Ed Chisholm right now? How much has he grown this year in GVA? And actually nobody would be counting the numbers of people in the room. We'd all be going, oh, I'm just I'm trying to raise my GVA. But the reality is we don't have something like that. And so actually even in church life, there's a temptation to measure success in a topsy-turvy way. We go, well, there's a number. We can count the number of you. You know, so obviously in the next month, we've only got three new people in the church. Great. The church is doing great. We've got three new babies. Well done us. And they say, actually, that's just not a very helpful way of, I mean, it's great that we've got people having babies, but it's not a very helpful way of measuring the health of a church. And it's probably neither is the equivalent of that a very effective way of measuring the health of an individual. And your growth in godliness or how, whether your life is successful, the numbers that you might reach to to define how much, what's my, I don't know, what's my salary and how, I don't know, what, there might be lots of ways, you, lots of numbers you might look for, how big is my family or how many descendants do I have, I'm not sure, but there might be numbers which are easy, but they may not reflect what actually success is for you. And... So I want to look at how Paul addressed this particular issue and look at a few texts in Paul. I'm going to put four up on the screen. They're not the only ones, but they're the four that I can think of from studying Paul where I think Paul looks back on his life and says, this is why I think what I've done has been a success. Right? There might be others, but these are the four I can think of where Paul looks back in some context and says, these are the reasons I think my life's been a success. 
And this is where I'd point to. The first one is in Romans chapter 15, uh, where he's saying, I've no longer got any room for preaching the gospel in the regions right the way from Jerusalem to Croatia. So Israel up to Croatia, through Turkey, Greece. He says, I don't have any, work to, any more work to do here. Not because everyone's a Christian, nothing like it. But because everywhere I've been, I've established gospel preaching churches that can now reach those areas. So I've actually fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem to Illyricum. And that's one of those four places I think Paul goes, oh, look, this, I've done it, I've done my job. Because my job was to go from place to place, breaking, if you like, new ground in the gospel, landing in places that didn't have the gospel. I'd preach, I'd gather a little group of guys who would respond to the gospel, a few families, a few older people, a few poor people, a few whatever, and they gather together, and there might only be 20, 30, 50 of them, but once they're there, I know that that community will be reached with the gospel, and so I go on and move to another place and do it and do it. Now, Paul's a pretty amazing guy and had a lot of gifts that none of us have, and he'd also seen the risen Jesus with his eyes, um, which probably makes you a bit more confident and a little bit more able to take persecution, and he's pretty gifted with the old miracle thing and not a bad preacher and probably the smartest man in the history of the Western church. So he, he had a lot going for him, but even so, the fact that he thought that way indicates I knew what I was trying to do. I was trying to get gospel-preaching churches in all of these little areas, in Greece and Turkey, and you, you read Acts, it's the story of how he does it. And he's, just, he's walking from place to place. He goes, I, I, then I, I tried to go over into northern Turkey, but the Spirit didn't let me. And he made me go over here. I was like, what's that like? And he wanders off over here, because then I had a dream. Go over to Greece, fine, I'll go to Greece. And he would be governed with this goal in mind, doing it the best he could, and occasionally God saying, no, not there, over here. And so he would... That, he knew that is something he had been given to fulfill. It was a ministry of the gospel. Like, get gospel preaching churches in all these places, and once I'm done, I can move on. So that's one of those four texts. Second is 1 Thessalonians 3, 6-8, which is completely different in flavor. Nothing to do with new conversions at all. He's writing to this church in Thessalonica in, in Greece, and he says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us like we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord's. This is Paul writing in the third chapter of a letter where he's saying, we came to you, we preached the gospel, uh, you saw the way we lived among you, and we preached Jesus, and we really hoped that after we left you'd keep going. But we weren't sure if you would have. It's, we're never sure about that. You see people respond, they go, yeah, I'd like to follow Jesus, but I didn't know when I left town whether you guys would stick with it or whether you go, yeah, it was a bit hard actually, or Whoa, it's a bit, well, what about that? Oh, let's give it up and I'm going down the pub. And actually Paul leaves town and doesn't know whether what, they've le left behind, what he's left behind is growing or not. So he sends Timothy, who's this young protege guy, goes over to check things out and he sees the church is not only still there, but they're actually standing firm in the face of persecution. And he comes back and says, Paul, you love this. And this is a ridiculous analogy, but for me to not have been here for a few months and then to come here and experience time worshipping with you like I have this morning just really encourages me as I just think the church in Seaford is... So you're not being persecuted as much as they were, I expect. Some of you maybe, but you're standing fast, and kind of there's a, a strength and a joy in God. And I, I'm going to go buzzing back to the people I know. I'm going. This is just really encouraging morning. Well, Timothy's had that, but with a church that he's only just planted, and he goes, Paul, 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 listen. They're standing fast in the Lord, and Paul says, 
now we live. And some translations say, now we truly live. They're trying to communicate. This is what really gives me life, is when I hear that people who I've preached the gospel to are standing firm. There's a sense of, you're still there. It's not about your breaking new ground and sending people to the nations and doubling, trebling, quadrupling in size. That, for Paul, probably was important. I don't, I don't think there's any... Am I, am I wrong about this? I don't think there's any place in any of Paul's letters where he tells us how many people he's preached the gospel to or how large a church is. Luke does it a few times where he tells us how many Christians there are in the world, but I don't think Paul ever does. And so he's, he's not particularly going, yeah, wonderful, Thessalonica used to be 40 and now it's 400, woo! He's going, what really gives me life is that they're still there. They're standing fast and there's opposition and there's attack and they're, they're holding on to the gospel. Acts 20, 26 to 27 has yet another way of thinking about it. He's talking to the elders in the church in Ephesus that, again, he's planted, and it's a wonderful speech, and there's this place in the middle where he says to them, I testify, therefore, that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock, the, the church, in which the Holy Spirit's made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I, I testify to you this day, I'm innocent of your blood. I, basically, when I came here, I spent two years, and the reason I can leave town now and go off somewhere else and say, I'm never going to see you again, is because I know that in my preaching, I have communicated the whole counsel of God. Everything God wants you to know, I've told you. I have gone through the scriptures, I've explained how they work, I've explained what God wants you to do, how he wants you to live, what the gospel is, how to stand firm in it, what it isn't, and how to respond to it. All of those, I've told you it all. So I'm now innocent. If you guys go wrong and weird, I know it's not my fault. I can honestly go in freedom and conscience saying, there is no, I've got nothing left to do here. Because you know the gospel. And then 2 Timothy 4, 6-7. to Quite a famous line, actually. A lot of people who aren't even Christians will know, that, know the line, fight the, I fought the good fights. It's, it's a kind of found its way into popular culture, really. They say, oh, they did, they fought the good fight. This is what, in the context what he said. And this is his last letter. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. It's like a, I'm about to die. And the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fights. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. And that threefold statement, in a way, summarizes the previous three, right? Because when Paul talks about fighting the fight of faith and uses battle language, he's often talking about the spiritual fight to preach the gospel and to stop people, you know, to stand firm when people are attacking him. So when he talks about fighting fights, he's usually talking about breakthrough gospel ministry. So actually he's talking about, if you like, the proclamation of the gospel everywhere he goes, like the first text. And when he says, I finished the race, he's talking about his own journey persevering in Christ and getting to the end of his life, having stood firm in faith, which is like the second passage. And when he says, I've kept the faith, from some of us, we influence a little bit by either Bon Jovi or by Journey, you know, don't stop believing. And, then, and actually for Paul, to say, no, no, I've kept the faith, or Glee, actually, if it might be, I don't know, it is for me, I, don't even, I didn't even know who Journey were until I watched Glee, um, and I've now lost some of the room, you think, what's Glee? Um, but for, for Paul, I've kept the faith isn't like I've kept on believing, as much as it means I have the, the faith, it's almost like faith with a capital F for Paul in this letter, he, he's often saying, you know, make sure we proclaim the faith, and we admonish people in the faith, it's a way of saying, I have actually, I've kept the gospel, I've kept the truth of the gospel. 
In other words, I've preserved, he's kind of reflecting on his theological achievements. He's, I have guarded the truth and I've kept the gospel safe. Because lots of people are trying to rob, it's like a, this sort of little baby that you're kind of holding on to, that everybody's trying to damage and corrupt and distort. You say, no, I've guarded it. I've looked after the gospel carefully. So nobody's come in and distorted it and changed it. Now, I think those four passages, the, th- the fourth of which summarizes the previous three in many ways, kind of summarize where Paul, how Paul thinks about a successful life. And if you put them all together, right, so he's, he's talking, the top one, he's got a mission, missional or missionary way of thinking about success. I, that's, that was for him, his goal. I, I have got to get from here to there. It's missionary, it's church planting, it's preaching the gospel. The second thing he had was like a, almost a pastoral and personal goal, which was I want to make sure that people who I preach to are still there, standing fast in faith many years later. And then the third one is more of a theological goal. I want to make sure that the gospel is kept safe and preserved so everyone still knows what it is. So if I now go back to my friend Dave, this, this is Paul's way of thinking about it, and then we'll think, how does that apply for us in a moment? If you go back to my friend Dave over in Eastbourne, and he says, so governments, and I think churches, end up valuing things they worked out how to measure rather than working out how to measure the things they value. So if you, by default, what will happen is the way you think about a successful life will be based on things that you can measure uh, and count easily. So, for example, if you were thinking about missionary success, success as a gospel preacher, I've got a commission, I've got the gospel here, and lots of people don't, and I want to be able to tell them the good news of Jesus, that Jesus died for them and loves them personally and wants to reconcile them to their Father God and adopt them into God's family, and Jesus is risen from the dead and he's conquered death and you don't need to be scared of it anymore, and there's a community here with a mandate to bless all the world and you can be part of it and God wants to, all of that stuff. Have I got a... Paul's going, I want to preach that to everybody. What wouldn't easily happen is that you'd think, so success in gospel preaching is bound up with the number of times people become Christians through me. That's what a successful missionary is, isn't it? Surely. It's the number of people who I have preached to and seen respond and say, yeah, I'll become a Christian. And that, that's an easy way of doing it. So you can say, yeah, I, one of the things I'd like to do in life is I'd like to have shared the gospel with people. I'd like, I'd like to have been faithful with the gospel in preaching to people who aren't Christians. Whether preaching means like I'm doing now, or whether it means talking to somebody um, over the school gate, or um, over the school gate, over the garden fence at the school gate, um, or some normal setting like that, walking the dog, I don't know. You might think, but my, the way I know if I'm any good at it, and the way I know if I've been successful, is that lots of people have become Christians through my preaching the gospel. And there's some truth in that. And I suspect people who see a lot of people become Christians are often good at it. But there's a lot of reasons why it's not a very good way of measuring success as somebody who shares the gospel. One reason is because depending on the part of the world you're in, you'll find it's a huge amount harder to see people become Christians than in other places. So I don't know, probably nobody in this room is from Morocco or Yemen. A guy from the church I was in a few years ago went to live in Morocco and he was there for 10 years to preach the gospel. He was a missionary to Morocco. And at the end of, I think, I left after 11 years and he'd seen nine Muslim men become Christian believers, which is incredibly successful as a full-time missionary in a very heavily Islamic country where you can't preach the gospel in a public way at all. To get nine people over 11 years is massive success. That's like revival in Moroccan terms. But here, if you were a full-time evangelist missionary and you'd seen nine people in 11 years, you might think, well, that's not great, maybe, I don't know. 
Um, and then if you were in some parts of the world, you went to you know, parts of Nigeria and you preach the gospel for 11 years, you'd expect to see a lot more than nine people. So where you are means that the number thing probably isn't the best way of deciding whether it's something you're doing well. And even in England, the fact that I do what I do and you do what you do means that I, this, a month ago, I'm standing in a Bible week, I've got 6,000 young people, a lot of whom aren't Christians. I preach the gospel for 35 minutes or talk to them about it. And then there's a response at the end and loads of people, there might have been, I don't know, 100 of them or something respond. And it, that doesn't mean I'm any better at preaching the gospel than you. It just means I've got a much lot, lot more people listening. And so that's not a very good way of telling whether it's something you're doing well and whether you're being faithful to what God has given you. But naturally, that's what we do. Oh, I haven't seen anybody. Oh, no, no, no. It's just, when was the last time I... That's not a very good measurement. And it might actually be a much better measurement to think, how often am I actually talking to people who don't know Jesus? Or how often am I even telling them something about what God's done in my life? That might be a better measurement than how many people have become Christians. Because the reality is, I never get to preach to anybody in a setting like this unless somebody like most of you has already spent time with somebody talking to them. So, do you see, I mean, it, it, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? Like, if I, I could stand here and preach the gospel and say, who wants to become a Christian? But if nobody's here who doesn't know Jesus already, then it doesn't really do anything. It's just talking to the wall. So, that might, there might be a better way of thinking about success. Like, am, am I measuring what's actually valuable, which is, am I being faithful? Am I loving my neighbor? Am I talking to them when the opportunity arises? Am I looking to make friends? And am I telling people as it comes up, what God's doing in my life? Am I serving them as a, as a loving neighbor? Am I looking to have them around for meals and just build relationship and then very normally and in normal everyday life talking about what God's done and why I think it matters? So that's a much better measurement of success. Okay? So that's on the, on the missionary thing. What about on the sort of more standing fast in the Lord, the personal pastoral? I think the same thing happens. Again, it would be easy as for me as a pastor to... Measure, how, measure success as a pastor by the number of people who came to midweek meetings or were in life groups or the percentage of this over that. And, blah, blah, blah. and church leaders have lots of these things and we do count them and find it useful just to know how many people are around. But if you start measuring your success that way, you're in a right mess. Because I don't know, there's some people who, there's people in, again, who I know in Eastbourne, there's probably some here as well, for whom getting to a meeting is extremely difficult for health reasons or for family reasons, lots of things. And that's not a very good measurement of whether they're growing in God at all. They might be growing far more in God than someone who's there every week. And so that's not a very good metric either. So as a, but as a pastor, it's tempting to go, oh, crunch the numbers, this is how well we're doing. Now, a much better way I used to think, I've thought about it from a guy who planted the church in Eastbourne, who, who led it for many years, a guy called Don Smith, who some of you will know, many, many won't. Um, but Don, when he started, when he, I remember him, he used to do this thing at funerals where, and he was, quite an, he was an older guy, even when he started the church, and he would do this thing at the funerals of older people who had died in the church. And he, he had this little rant he used to enjoy doing. And he used, he used to say, because he, when he first moved to Eastbourne, loads of people said, this flaky, he, they, people would refer to them as like a flaky bunch of happy clappies. Right? So he just, you saw all these guys, and they're, they're completely insubstantial and flaky. And they're all, oh, just happy clappies. They're going, as if everything's lovely and happy, and actually there's still sad things happening. Like we did this morning, right? Clap, clapping, cheering, celebrating, thanking. And he used, he used to really get up his nose. But when you've only got 17 of you and a piano and it doesn't sound very good, it's quite difficult to argue that you're really changing the world. So he would just like, all right, we'll just have to wait. 
But then he kind of got his own back about 15 years later. And every time he'd give a funeral, he'd say, well, he'd say two things about the happy, clappy thing. He'd say, firstly, it's much better to be happy, clappy than humpy, grumpy. That was his, norm, his favorite line. He's just like, if you've got a choice, are we actually going to say it's a bad thing that people are happy about being Christians, firstly? And secondly, he would say, if you think that the people that we are serving as a church and the people that are part of this church are insubstantial or flaky or happy, clappy and don't really get it, he said, you, used to, you need to watch my people die. He would often tell people that. He said, you need to come and watch people in this church die. As they're getting old, as they're passing into the shadows, as they're in their last few weeks, months of life, watch the way they die, and you will not see a trace of flakiness. You won't see people who've got no idea how to hold on. You will find people who are standing fast in the Lord, who have hope, who know their future, who know the, they know the Bible, they know the gospel. My wife's grandfather, I remember him, he, was, um, he had been in the church from the beginning. His name was Dan James. He would, if he was alive now, he'd probably be 100. He was about 88 when he died. And, uh, and he, so I remember him dying, and I remember his wife, Pat, who they'd been together for 60 years. And the day that Dan had died, I remember Pat coming around for, she came around for dinner with Rachel's family. And as she just said grace, she just said, thank you, Lord, that, on, that you've taken Dan to be home. And thank you so much that on a day like this, you've given us such a beautiful day with the downs. And, and it's just so glorious to have our eyes lifted to who. And as I was listening to praying, I was thinking, that's not flaky. That's people who are true. I, as a pastor, could go, wow, what a privilege to be part of this, that you are truly standing firm in the Lord. And that's actually a much better measure. How people die might be a much better measure than how many people are in I don't know, a midweek meeting or a goodness knows what else. Now that's for me as a pastor, but I think probably the reality same is true for all of us. Say, I want, so when when that voice comes over the recording in my life, I do want people to say, yes, he he cared for people and the people who he pastors, for me as a pastor, persevered to the end and they stood fast in the Lord. I do want that. But I also want people to say that I did. I also want people to say, well, when he died, that's how he did it. He, 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 fought the good fight, he finished the race, he kept the faith, he didn't, he didn't stop, he didn't become a grumbling, cantankerous letter writing to the local paper angrily complaining about seagulls or whatever it is they do. And I, he didn't become that sort of a grouch. He, he was somebody who still had joy in God through suffering right to the end. And the same, actually, you might, if you have a theological goal in life, you, you know, I, personally it would be easy to measure that by success as well. How many books did you sell? How many people downloaded your stuff? And this is less true, for, I know, for people if you're not a, mainly a preacher or a teacher, but you could have the same risk there as well. So just thinking through, what, would, what should my goals be for life? How, how could I perhaps... Given the, given the fact that I want to stand firm in God and I do want to preach the gospel and I do want to make sure I don't compromise on what God's done in me and I don't mess around with the gospel and change it because the culture doesn't like it, what kind of goals would it be appropriate for me to have? I think there's a crucial thing to do at this point, which is to distinguish between the fruit we bear and the goals we have. Okay? And the distinction is very important because fruit, if you like, the, the, res, the result of what we do is a thing God does, right? Growing fruit is the result of what God does, producing life in other people, or, I don't know, saving people, giving gifts to the church, working signs and wonders, healing people. That's not something I do. I can pray for somebody to be healed, but I cannot heal them. I can speak the gospel to somebody, but I cannot save them. I can encourage people to give financially and give financially generously myself, but I can't make anybody else do it. I'm just not in a position to do that. But I, that's fruit. That's God stuff. What I can do is I can set goals 
which might be results of obedience to what God's told me to do. They might be, instead of saying, I can't, well, I can't save anybody, but I can invite people around for dinner. Or I'll tell people the gospel. I can't make other people generous, but I can give myself and live a life of generosity. I, I might not be able to make my children Christians, but I can train them. I can teach them scripture. I can live, model a godly life to them and trust that God will make use of that in their lives. I might not be able to make anybody think Jesus is great, but I can love my neighbor as I love myself. I might not be able to disciple everybody in the church in theology, but I can study the scriptures myself and make sure I understand them. And generally, we fail to distinguish between them. And so I, I noticed this recently. I was thinking, well, if, you, if, to, if you meet two people and they're both successful, so Tony and Jane are both successful, okay, in life, whatever, you look at them, and you go up to Jane and you say, Jane, how'd you do it? And she says, I've just, I'm, not, I'm not particularly gifted, I've just worked very hard. And then you go to Tony and Tony said, I haven't particularly worked all that hard, I'm just very gifted. Now, in our culture, everybody laughs and thinks that Tony is being arrogant and thinks that Jane is being humble. But biblically speaking, it's exactly the other way around. Because what Tony is saying is, I am, I've been given a gift. That's all that's happened. I've been successful because I've been gifted. God gave me a gift. And I've used it, yes, I've been faithful with it, but that's where the credit goes to the, the giver. Whereas Jane, by saying, I'm, I'm not very gifted, I've just worked hard, he's basically saying, I'm a really diligent, hard-working character, and that's why I've done well. Whereas so-and-so over here thinks it's down to their gift. Actually, it's not. None of us are any more gifted than anyone else. It's just, I've worked hard. So she's taken the credit, and he's not. But isn't it interesting that when you first hear it, you assume that he's taken the credit and she's not? It's kind of funny, upside-down thinking. And I just, I realize this because in what I do, I think sometimes it's just, I don't work hard. I don't work harder to learn the Bible than a lot of people I know. I just, God gave me a better memory than a lot of people. It's not, it's not, I'm not better. I'm not worked harder. I've just, you see what I mean? It's not striving. It's not, oh, what a wonderful godly man. It's just like, no, God, my brain works that way. There's lots of things it doesn't do, like notice visual things at all. They, you know the thing about, I told many of you this before, they put a dead tree in my office and I didn't realize for six weeks. And I, I'm not even exaggerating. I went in and they sent me and they said, you don't say anything about your office. Six weeks later. And I went into my office and I looked around and I said, is it this? And picked up a laptop bag that I hadn't noticed before. No, it's not that. Went in, picked up another thing, and then they said it's quite a lot bigger than both of those items. And I went in and turned to my right. And my office is not large, right? My office is, I don't know, it's sort of this, this kind of, that kind of size. And there was a dead tree taller than me sitting in the room and I'd never noticed it. So my brain doesn't do that. But my brain does memorize lots of the Bible. I find that easy. And that, that's a gift, do you see? But it's not, it's not an issue of work, it's an issue of gift. And so God wants you to steward and use your gifts. I just said to Claire after the singing, I'm like, I could work really hard. I cannot sing like that. And you would be very glad that I don't sing into the microphone because it doesn't sound as nice. She's just been given a gift and it's lovely that she has and she's using it well. You are responsible for using the gift God's given you, but don't think that somehow to acknowledge it is to regard yourself as a great person. It's not. Just say, no, this is something God's given me to do. No matter how hard I work, I would not be as good at football as Martin. I would not be as good at the drums as Ed. There's lots of people here. I just, I couldn't do it. You watch Peter Nichols play the piano and he did work hard, but no matter how hard anybody else in the room worked, probably including his dad, you would not be as good as him. He's just better. He's been given a gift and it's great. And let's acknowledge and see the gift. Is that, have I been, have I caused family strife in making that remark? I'm going to see David is doing a very good poker face, but you <laughs> 
I'm kind of working on the basis that, you know, no matter how long I practiced, I wouldn't be able to play like Peter. And, and actually to acknowledge gifts and say that's a God thing. But I've got to steward it and use it well. But I'm not going to measure my success by whether my gift was this size rather than that size. Because if God's given me a gifted, if God made me to be able to sing like I can rather than like Claire can, but I use it in whatever way that would mean faithfully, then I am successful with what God's given me. And if God's given her more of a gift, then she'll be able to do more. But I mustn't look at her and think, she can do that and I can only do this and therefore I'm a failure. You say, no, it's a different gift. I'm responsible for what I do with what God gave me. So we distinguish, if you like, between the, the goals we have, which is to use what God's given us well, and the fruit it produces, which is down to God and is entirely down to his uh, ability to just give us whatever he likes. And so you might, in different categories, like these, this is, these are Paul's, but you might in different categories want to think, okay, what are the things that would count as successful for me? Missionally, like as, a, as somebody who, Grant, I don't have Paul's gifts, I don't have Paul's time in history, I, also, I don't even know where Illyricum is, for goodness sake, so I'm not going to do that, but I could find out, but I'm not, that's not me, but I might also have a goal, how what, kind of, what would be successful for me if I just thought, how have I shared the gospel? What would I like to be able to say? It'd be wonderful if everyone I ever spoke to became a believer, but it doesn't usually happen like that. But I would like to be somebody who, on a regular basis, is just every week I'm having conversations with people who don't know Jesus. And sometimes when it comes up, I'm inviting them around, I'm building relationships, and I'm naturally talking. I'd like to be a regular part of my life. That would be a goal for me. And sometimes people become Christians and sometimes they don't. You might want to you know, have a similar kind of goal reflection on how, what it's going to look like for you standing fast in the Lord. What helps me and my family stand fast in the Lord and how do I do it? So a question I often ask people to think through is, what makes you happy in God and faithful to God? Right, now you've figured out what it is, make a discipline out of it. Very personal example for me from the last 48 hours. I realized two days ago that I was not enjoying God as much as I used to and not growing in my love for him in my personal times with him as much as I used to because I was using an electronic Bible. This wouldn't be true for everybody. I was using phone or iPad and I just found two things happened. It was a distraction because there were lots of other things that are on there that, ooh, look, ooh. And there was also lots of temptation, just, you're doing this all the time, flicking things. I mean, some of you don't use this, but I just, and I found that the combination meant I'm reading this too fast and I'm not quiet enough in my soul to get the best out of the scriptures and I've been doing it for two years and I realized two days ago I'm just being very honest about it two days ago I thought I think this is actually harming my spiritual life so I'm going to keep the bible on the ipad I still preach from it and teach from it but I'm going to put that away and when I, and I then actually believe it or not I had to order I had to go and buy a paper bible it's ridiculous. I mean, it sounds silly but you think surely you're a preacher you've got nine but no I actually went away and I ordered one on amazon it's coming tomorrow and I'm really excited about it. And I got just ordered a paper Bible thinking, this and a notebook will do me better. This is going to help me stand fast in God. It's going to help me delight in God. It will help my family delight in God. So I'm going to do that. That's a tiny, tiny example. But the goal, I want to stand fast in and delight in God. So how do I do that as well? And you might find the same kind of thing, if you're a, particularly if you're leading anybody. You've got, you're a parent. You're a husband or wife. You're a life group leader. You think, how do I... What kind of goal might I want for my life theologically as well? I just want to help serve people to understand God. My prayer is that all of us, as we conclude our lives, might be able to say with Paul, I, like him, I have, actually, I have fought the good fight. I fought 
in the gospel and I won. And I've, I've kept the faith and I've finished the race. I've guarded the gospel. I've completed my race. And that when that voice comes out over the funeral room or whatever it is, if it, were, if it were to happen that way, that the things you would be able to say would sound translated into a 21st century key for who you are, but would sound very much like what Paul himself was able to say. I've done it. That is what, that's what I wanted to achieve and I got there. Can I pray for you? And then just as we do, we're, we're gonna, I'm sorry, we're just overrun by about two or three minutes more than I wanted to. Um, but if I could just pray for you and then just, Ollie, I think will come up and just very mellow, play a particular song. I'd love us to break bread as we conclude and just to take the bread and the wine as a, or the bread and the juice as a representation of actually the key moment in history that turned worldly notions of success on their heads. Suddenly, actually all success now is to be viewed through the lens of the cross that we say, Actually, weakness is strength, and strength is weakness, and we need to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you won, but many people would have thought you hadn't. I want to live like you and embody the same kind of attitude to what life is about as you had. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the difference that you've put in this room. For the, I thank you personally for the joy and life I saw this morning as we celebrated together. I thank you. Some of us are going through tough times and are choosing to lift our gaze. Others of us are having a great time and are celebrating God through it. Some of us are uh, having wonderful time. The, the, the stage of life is we are drowning in things to do because we've got children or work assignments coming out of our ears. And others of us are saying, this is actually a, a quieter it's a difficult time. I'm not quite sure where next and what season's coming and there's some complexities to my situation. But Lord, I thank you that in all of these circumstances and with all of these people and with all of these lives and questions and agendas, that you, by your Spirit, are at work to pull us on in the race we have to run for you. And I pray that in any number of different ways you would just touch individual people. Lord, looking around this room even now, just I pray for for Colin and I pray that you'd show him what it's like for him I pray for Helen that you'd show it what it's like for her I pray for Graham you'd show it what it's like for him that you'd reveal to everyone here actually I'm with you and I want you to get to the end of the race with flying colors and I want to help you figure out how to do that I'm going to stand with you as you do Lord we pray you'd move among us and we pray that the joy of what Jesus did for us now as we break bread would become freshly real and enjoyable and powerful for our lives in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may just want to stand and in your own time, perhaps go and take the bread and the juice. Just reflect on Jesus' body broken for us, his blood spilt for us, the new world he's made for us, and take hold of it in, in thanksgiving to him for what he's done.